We live in a world of violence, war, magic, and the supernatural. I'm here to bring you a glimmer of hope for tomorrow. This is the Voice of Hope podcast, and you can call me Beacon, your auditory guide to the safety of Castle Refuge. To all Tomorrow Legion teams in the field, reference your updated ciphers. Your mission profile references are 3, 10, 20, Ace of Clubs, 4, 6, 4, Jack of Diamonds, 20, 2, 20, 12, 1, 8, 16, 3, 4, 4, 14, 9, 5, 6. This is a priority two mission for any set teams or cyber knights operating within the Wisconsin Territory. The Dragon Lord of the Kingdom of Shido must die. Intelligence on this creature is minimal, but the kingdom has been slaughtering any Tolkien refugee that has moved through central Wisconsin. Our friendly neighborhood Northern Gun representative, Chuck Jones, has been using his relief funds to move refugees through this area and down the Mississippi River to Castle Refuge. Chuck Jones's information suggests that the dragon Keith is an adult dragon, but the specific type has yet to be determined. He also has reported the loss of several refugee convoys moving through this part of Wisconsin to what is assumed to be Broadkill Raiders. However, the Kingdom of Shido has a sizable force of 16 Broadkill working as primary enforcers, with at least a third of them having major cybernetic reconstruction. It also seems that a group of Daemon Xs have joined the Kingdom recently, bringing with them at least a dozen enslaved refugees. Legion Intelligence believes that if the Dragon Keith is killed, that these groups will decimate each other in the aftermath. This would greatly reduce the threat to refugee security in this region. However, an adult dragon, no matter the specific type, is an extremely powerful combatant. Reports from the CS during their invasion of the Tolkien city of Freehold report that an adult dragon, or the Dragon Princes, was able to single-handedly decimate an armored company of CS troops. Other sources of intel have recently identified some minor dragon kingdoms are forcing members of their enslaved population to undergo the dragon juicer conversion to make highly effective slave soldiers, so be on the lookout for other unexpected forces if you move against the dragon Keith. Our friend Calatin has recently returned from another harrowing quest that he wished to share with our listeners in its entirety. This report will include information for any Tomorrow Legion teams moving into the Eastern Territories. Hey, Beacon, it's Calatin. I just got back from Atlantis, and I have a tale to tell you. It all started when I decided to find the fairy queen, Fraxiania, after I found out Splugor slavers bought her from the black market. Now, the trouble was, the only lead I had when I got back to Castle Refuge was that it was those Splugi monsters who got her. It wasn't much, so I went to the archive and had a chat with Daria, the Castle Refuge archivist. She said the Splugorth don't just live in Atlantis, but have little outposts here and there. I guess that makes sense, because it's a long trip to Atlantis. She also said their biggest one was way up in Nova Scotia. Well, that was my lead. I prayed to the goddess about that and lay out a Celtic cross of tarot cards to find the supernatural guidance. To get a sense of the presence... I first drew a Five of Cups, a card that represents loss, and a loss I felt. Good Queen Fraxiania may not be my lover, but I felt her loss strongly. Because of this draw, I felt real confident the spirits were willing to guide me. The second card, a challenge, was an inverted Seven of Cups. It told me I had to think deeply about the quest, but I had to act. The third card, the past was a seven of wands, 
meaning I had to be defensive. Maybe we haven't been aggressive enough with the Smoogorth. The fourth card, the future, was an inverted magician, a real bad sign. It told me I had to avoid being selfish and that the bad luck would give me hardship. I didn't like this one, but the spirits were being honest with me, so I had to respect them. The fifth card was about my goal in this situation. I drew the Empress, which meant a lot of things. I thought about it, and one thing about the Empress is that it can mean freedom with success. That was what I was hoping for, freedom for Queen Fraxiania, and maybe freedom for someone else. The sixth card told me what truly motivated me was justice. It meant Queen Fraxiania's capture weighed on me as unfair, and that seemed right to me. It also put weight on my actions. They were going to affect other people. The seventh card was advice about what to do, and it was inverted strength. Power was going to tempt me, and I had to be brave. Things were going to make me mad, but I had to show restraint. The eighth card was about external influences, and I drew a four of pentacles. Somehow gifts or inheritance or something like that was going to give me trouble or a decision to make. The ninth card was about my hopes and fears along the way, and I drew an inverted three of wands, meaning I might make decisions too hastily, something I've been guilty of from time to time. It might mean people wouldn't trust me, though. The final card, the one that truly scared me, was the outcome. I drew an inverted ace of swords, meaning I might not find happiness in whatever happened, or there was too much distraction. Didn't mean I couldn't rescue free Queen Fraxiania, but it did mean everything wasn't going to come up roses either. Altogether, the cards were screaming at me that I had to act. I had to act. There would be temptations and struggle along the way. But there was only one thing to do. Go to the Splugorth Colony in Nova Scotia. Looking at that map, that was a long, long way through dangerous territory and unsettled wilderness. Now, I couldn't expect old Smiley and the gang to trek across half the continent with me, and I figured this wouldn't be any official Legion business. So I talked to Ragnar Thunderaxe, the fellow who usually gives us our marching orders. He said he could give me a personal leave of absence, and that I should rearm, seeing as I lost my ice blast shotgun. After talking with the quartermaster by the name of Patricia Newick, I picked out a really old rifle Patricia had converted into a telekinetic weapon with their techno-wizardry skills. She said the gun was a real special and centuries-old gun. Some ancient general once called this M1 Garand the greatest battle implement ever devised. So along with the magic of a skilled techno-wizard, it could have some real symbolic oomph. When I said it seemed wrong to take a relic that might be in a museum out into danger, she said whoever built it that long ago would want it to serve as a cause of righteousness and do harm to oppressors. I couldn't argue with that. She also gave me a two-seater ATV she had converted to use magical energy. I had to plot my course, and there was no good way to make it that far without running into something. I figured I could make it through the magic zone all right, seeing as I'm a man of magic myself. However, I know there are risks, 
even for people like me. My goal was to get to Queenstown Harbor, where I could switch to moving by water. As I set out on a crisp Tuesday morning, Sarah, my SIAX friend from my task force, was leaning on my ride. She had her bags packed and her TK submachine gun slung over her shoulder. I tried to talk her out of it, seeing as she'd faced special danger on this trip, but she insisted she help me. She went on and on about how she felt real bad for the little fairies and how she thought I was doing the right thing. I remembered my tarot draw with four of pentacles. It represented the folly of disrespecting others' wishes. So I had a traveling companion. We made it to Kingsdale early that afternoon and took the north road out of town to avoid Wyken, where neither of us would be welcome. There was a also a ley line I knew on the route we could use to help power the ATV. On the way, Sarah was goofing around with her radio set, and she picked up some traffic. She started shouting about how the CS were coming, and they had dog boys. So I gunned the engine, pumping some extra power of my own into it to make it to the ley line before the dog boys could sniff us out. As we approached the ley line, Samus zooped to her head. He definitely saw us because he circled back. I told Sarah to wave, and she gave the friendliest wave she could muster. The engines of the power armor roared as the pilot turned northwest. We got to the ley line, but along the ley line the plants were dead and crispy black like they had been poisoned. Great goddess, there was no cover. We quickly drove off the road and into a ravine. Still, there wasn't any cover. I had to cast potent spells to hide us. First, I put an illusion on the ATV to make it look like it was a burnt-out wreck. Then I made both of us invisible, truly invisible, pumping a lot of power into the spell. Soon enough, the Samus was back, circling over the intersection of the ley line and the road. Then we could hear a loud clanking as a coalition vehicle approached from the northwest along the road. Sarah told me it was a Coalition Mark 9 EPC, which stood for Exploratory Personal Vehicle. Even though we were invisible, we crouched as low as we could behind a pretty small rock. I prayed to the goddess as a squad of dog boys led by a Psystalker poured out of the back of the vehicle, fanning out with professional efficiency. Sarah whispered to me through our mind link, they suspected something about our ATV. A pair of dog boys began approaching the vehicle. I realized aggressive action would be necessary if we were going to keep our ride and maybe our skins. So we ran for the Coalition EPC, knowing their fancy optics were no match for my good magic. The rear door was open, and a grunt inside had his laser rifle pointed at the back. We heard shouting from the dog boys by our ride, so we acted. Both of us firing telekinetic energy at the Coalition Guard, dropping them. We were still invisible, and we moved into the vehicle real quick as the door closed behind us. While I tried to open the front driver compartment, Sarah opened the hatch to the gunner's position in the turret. She blasted the gunner with her TK submachine gun, but the door to the driver's seats was locked. Sarah was smart, though, when it came to hacking CS electronics. She quickly bypassed the lock and opened it. As it did, we had to dodge a hail of laser fire 
and one of the blasts wounded Sarah. Knowing my invisibility spell was nearing its end, I took aim at the driver's assistant, imbuing my round with extra arcane energy, and fired a bolt that shattered his chest protection. As my spell wore off, the driver's pistol eclipse was also empty. I said to the grunt, Call off your dogs! But he said no, and reached for a fresh eclipse. I don't like to kill these coalition guys. They may hate me, but it's not really their fault. They live in a rotten system, where they learn people like me are out to destroy humanity, or at least lead their innocent into hell. Well, the thing is that their hatred of people like me and my friends leaves us with no choice sometimes, and this is one of them. I fired again, punching a wicked hole in his sternum. We didn't have much time. Now, we might be able to take the Coalition ride, I don't know, but it was going to be awfully conspicuous. There were six enemies outside on foot, one Samus providing overwatch. And maybe, most important, Sarah was hurt. I poured some of my magic into her, fixing a wound. She told me to climb into the turret while she went to the front console. Through the turret scope, I could see the dog boys had figured out the illusion, and it looked like they were wanting to set charges. So I started trying to hit, hit them with the la turret's laser guns, but I wasn't so familiar with the controls. I blasted around wildly, causing the dog boys to scatter. I decided I'd just keep them busy. As much as I felt sympathy for the usual CS dead boy, I really felt dog boys. They're bred as cannon fodder, but could have all the dignity of any other sapient being. Then I heard a terrible rattle as a Samus raked the EPC with a blast of railgun fire. Alarms started going off, but Sarah told me we'd be okay for a bit. The dog boys were no longer panicked, and I could see the Psystalker leader rallying them to attack the vehicle, too. I had to stop goofing around with these guys. I focused my fire as some of those dog boys started hurling grenades at the vehicle. I was, it was getting loud as some of the lights in the EPC started flickering, and a piece of shrapnel punctured the turret collar. Then Sarah told me she had covered the, the with the Samus. I figured... I focused fire as best I could on the side stalker, but the damage to the turret had thrown off the aim. Then I heard a bunch of whooshing sounds as all the mini-missiles on the thing launched up into the Samus. Sarah had hacked the machine to fire a full salvo guided attack. I kept firing, making an adjustment for the misaligned sights, and finally scored a hit on the side stalker, dropping him. Then... There was a series of explosions in the sky, and Sarah said the Samus was going down. Still, those dog boys were coming fast, seeing that we had limited abilities with guns and no more missiles. Sarah then lowered the back hatch and concentrated her own psychic powers, enough to pick up a dog boy and hurl him into the other. But the last of my, I put the last of my magical power into some armor that could stop most of the dog boy's weapons stepping out, firing my TK rifle as best I could, drawing a lot of laser fire. I think it was when Sarah tossed a second dog boy that the rest of them broke and routed. Now, I know dog boys are brave and pretty damn smart. They knew we had to use a lot of power to do what we did, so they could maybe wait us out. So we ran to our vehicle. That had a lot of psychic energy still. It's kind of a second reserve for me.
I pumped it into the ATV, and we boogied our way out of there with Sarah firing off a wild blast of TK energy back at anything moving behind us. Later, I used an object reading on some of the dead plants that got stuck on our ATV. The coalition had been laying down plant poisons on the ley line just to make it hard to find cover or forage. We got away, sure, but we were rattled. Back when we were with Smiley and the gang, we had some real firepower and muscle. They had our backs so we could use our powers for peaceful things. Without them, we both felt real vulnerable. Next time, I'll tell you about how it was when we got to Merc Down. Recently, the Council of Hope hosted a visiting ally, the newly appointed member of the Rapid City Council, Council Member Bazan. Bazan is a dragon from the Rushmore Dragon Holt. The Rushmore Dragon Freehold joined the city of Rapid City during the recent Range War with the help of Community Outreach 438. The Dragon Holt's ruler, Frederick, appointed Bazan as his representative to the city council. The Tomorrow Legion is also hosting Frederick's offspring, a royal frilled dragon hatchling by the name of Thomas. Thomas has been assigned to Set 409 and has already been critical in securing the freedom of dozens of captured Faverlin in the Arkansas Territory. Bazan's visit went well and he is currently traveling to Kingsdale to meet with Titan Robotics. The Rapid City Council is looking for additional industries for the city-state in the aftermath of the Range War due to the loss of Bandito Arms. Bandito Arms was the second largest provider of jobs in the city and a major contributor of equipment to the militia. However, during the Range War, it became known that the head of Bandito Arms Rapid City was also providing weapons and ammunition to the Simvin clans in exchange for control of Rapid City when they won the war. The council was already considering expelling them from the city, but Bandito Arms started pulling their people out when the leadership was slaughtered by the former Tomorrow Legion member, Justice Ranger Miller. Wilkes Industries already had a contract with Titan Robotics for the self-defense force, so the city council sent Bazan to Kingsdale to begin negotiations with Titan Robotics to open a Titan Robotics showroom in Rapid City. They hope that this will be the first step towards Titan Robotics opening additional manufacturing facilities in the city. The Council of Hope has sent Thomas and Set 409 to Kingsdale to provide security for Bazan while he undergoes this critical negotiation. We wish him luck. As to the entity formerly known as Justice Ranger Miller, Major DeShane of Legion Intelligence advises if any Legion teams come into contact with this creature to minimize contact and immediately inform Legion Intelligence of his whereabouts. COTS 438 explained that Miller came under the influence of a sentient rune weapon and was slowly corrupted throughout the campaign against the Simvin. It is unclear whether Justice Ranger Miller was killed or full, fully corrupted by this artifact, but the former team leader of the 438th is no more. Based on occult information provided by Christmas Carson of the Odd Squad, Miller has been transformed into an entity known as a Hanging Judge. These creatures are believed to be near-invincible. In Carson's home reality, they wander the Great Plains, dealing out death in the name of some alien form of justice that only they understand. After the Wyoming Range War, Bandito Armed Security confirmed that Miller somehow penetrated their regional headquarters in Rapid City and murdered Bernard Santo and his staff and then disappeared before further Rapid City Sheriff's deputies could arrive. This act has put the Tomorrow Legion on censor with Bandito Arms and forced them to begin consolidating their operations in the region of New Dodge City. This situation could make Bandito Arms uncooperative with any Tomorrow Legion teams operating in that area. However, successful assistance to Bandito Arms in and around the labyrinth could bring Bandito Arms back into the fold supporting the Legion with weapons and equipment. Stay safe, move surely, and look out for your fellow refugees. Because here on Rifts Earth, 
there be dragons. Do not lose hope, for the voice of hope will guide you to your new tomorrow. Speak to you again soon. Hello, Rifters. Today I wanted to talk to you about one of the more interesting aspects of Rifts since the very beginning, dragons. And for our discussion today, I invited a voice you all may recognize, Dr. John Stewart. He is the voice of Callum. John, welcome to Voice of Hope. Thank you for having me again. This is be this will be fun. Yeah, oh, definitely. And so, like, dragons are one of those things that it's like when when Rifts first came out and flipping through the very first version of the uh, Rifts rulebook, it's like, holy crap, I can play a dragon. Like, literally, that's one of the things that, like, stood out with Rifts from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's interesting, ta- the you know, because they had uh, RCCs, racial character classes, and so the Dragon Hatchling was one of those. Actually, in the base book had four types. They had the dra- the Great Horned, they had the Fire Dragon, the Ice Dragon, and the Thunder Lizard. However, with the uh, Ultimate Edition update, they at- basically changed them up and had the Cat's Eye Dragon, which is basically like a lion shaped dragon the forest runner royal frilled a whip-tailed dragon um and then they're like the book uh dragons and gods pretty much did dragon hatchlings for all the types um where did you look at any of those or have you pretty much just been savage riffs is that where you kind of i've mostly been savage riffs though i mean i i played uh palladium riffs back like i don't know 20 years ago or so um and i do kind of remember the ultimate edition uh, that kind of thing uh i did not ever see uh, dragons and gods although that sounds like an interesting book yeah it's it's pretty cool and i mean it's one of those we talk about it later but i mean dragons are one of those massive power things within any world especially in rifts absolutely they they represent power yeah exactly and it's one of those things that it's like wait again i could play a dragon um, and so when it came to actually Savage Worlds, Savage Rifts, the Tomorrow Legion Player's Guide introduced uh, the Flamewind Dragon as the initial Dragon Hatchling, and then when they re-upped it to Suede, basically you had the Flamewind Dragon in the base book, the Tomorrow Legion Player's Guide, and then the Field Manual introduced the Forest Runner, the Great Horn, the Royal Frilled, and the Snow Lizard all as player options. Yeah. Now, and we'll get a, get into it a little bit, but uh, you may be intimately familiar with the uh, Royal Frilled Dragons, so... Yeah, I've been playing one of those in your game for a bit, and it's been a blast. We'll talk about why Dragon Hatchlings are so fun to play in a bit, but yeah, that's been good fun. Yeah, actually, and the Th- Thomas is rapidly becoming one of my central figures in the storyline, so... I'm a spotlight hog. Uh, I wouldn't say you're a hog. I think you do a pretty good job of balancing it out for such a large creature. But So like in Rift's lore, then that's one of the things, right, that, that most people who are into Rift's just it has such deep lore associated with it. And a lot of that is actually, there's a lot of deep lore associated with dragons. Yes. And Absolutely. So, the history or, or mythology through gaming of many, many types, yes. Yeah, and it's so it's one of those things like dragons, for example, you think about, well, dragons are everywhere, like fantasy worlds, and then in rifts, it's in, they're in sci-fi worlds, they're in rifts, and they really are cosmic beings that don't have a known home specific home world, kind of like the Atlanteans. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, they exist in multiple realities, and really they kind of symbolize magic and knowledge, but also primal power and deep emotions. Yeah, you, you, you know where you stand with the dragon. Right, or if you want to go with Shadowrun, never deal with a dragon, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the interesting thing is, the dragon kind is they don't they don't have a formal society. Now we do see some differences as we get into some of the the lore books. They don't generally form societies, and it's part of it is just because uh, eons ago they're they're so powerful that they just abandoned it because they are literally one of the few apex predators everywhere they go. Yeah, absolutely. They they are powerhouses even from being a baby yeah exactly and so and the interesting thing is so they're inherently magical they are inherently psionic they inherently shapeshift teleport and they have powerful and resilient bodies so it's one of those things that uh, like in palladium rifts they're very powerful and in savage rifts they kind of reflect that power and we'll actually get into some of that with actually a, a character build a little bit later yes um, so the, one of the interest, really interesting things about dragons, and we play this up quite a bit in our game, is so dragon hatchlings are generally born alone, but they are psychically imprinted from their parents with some rudimentary knowledge. Yeah, we even had a nice birth scene for my character as he hatched from an egg, and uh, uh, was sort of uh, tasked with uh, learning and growing amongst the Tomorrow Legion. Yeah, and that's that's one of the really interesting things in like when we get into actually playing dragons is like you literally are a sponge, like you're absorbing the world around you, you know. So they do have some inherent things, like they can speak and read dragonese for us, we uh, elven, but for us we just kind of like, oh, you also know how to speak English, if you will. Yes, or American English. <laughs> right, you know, so they know basic mathematics. However, when it comes to like interacting with other beings, they're kind of a sponge. Yeah, you you um, you need to find your your moral bearing, and you've got to uh, uh, sort of figure out where you actually fit among people, um, and what's important, what's not important. Yeah, that's all up in the air for a dragon hatchling, which is really kind of funny, and we'll talk about it later. But it does make dragon hatchlings a very interesting character to play for, say, younger uh, players that want to get into the game. Absolutely. But it's one of those that because of that, they generally imprint on a group. So like Thomas has been kind of imprinted on our Tomorrow Legion set team. And so they can either develop in a good way with strong morals and ethical based understanding of the world. Or, you know, they're a dragon, right? So if if they're hatched and there's no one around and the first people they meet attack them or teach them evil destructive things, most likely you're going to get an evil dragon out of that. Right, or if you have no guidance, you just will act selfishly, and that will imprint. Yeah, exactly. Now, it's kind of interesting when when one of the kind of things within the Rift's lore is they kind of talk about how dragons are uh, solitary beings. The dragons, when they interact, they don't get along. They're kind of like cats, if you will. Like, very few of them like other cats. (laughs) Yeah. That's absolutely right. Although my character has had some positive interactions with at least one dragon. Right. And so that, and that honestly, when you actually get into the lore though, like, you know, that was of course established in Palladium Fantasy and the first Rifts book. But then when you go further, like the continent of Lannis, there's like 1,200 dragons that reside there. You had in Tolkien, you had the city of Freehold, which had a population of 360 dragons to include like 19 ancient dragons. So it's one of those, I think, even though they wrote it in there, there's kind of some wiggle room in how that interaction action dragon dragon goes and i think that might be because on rift's earth yeah dragons are very powerful but they're not necessarily the heaviest hitters out there all the time 
they can be taken down by all sorts of entities, both mundane and magical. Right, exactly, and that's one of the things, Rifts is one of those, I mean, that's high power settings where, like, anybody can be an Apex Predator, if you will. Absolutely. So today, kind of beyond the lore, we're going to talk about some player options for Dragon Hatchlings. We're going to talk about, and we're going to have a, a character build off. Uh, John and I both brought our own uh, Dragon Hatchling to play, minus not his the character he's actually playing in my game. Um, but then we also are going to talk some GM considerations for Dragon Hatchlings. Sounds good to me. So, John, like I said, in our weekly game, you play a Royal Frilled Dragon Hatchling. So, like, when we first started, like, talking about this game, like... What's some of the stuff you went through in building Thomas, and then um, what would you say some of the things that you're really enjoying about playing the dragon, some of the things that are kind of challenging about it, and then what are some gotchas you would suggest to watch out for? Yeah, so um, I picked a dragon hatchling in general just because, I don't know, it seems fun. You, you get to play something that's really pretty extreme. Um so, you know, you have a lot of power and stuff, though they are reasonably well-balanced with other characters. Um, and uh, also you have this wonderful role-playing opportunity to play somebody who is purposefully naive. Like, you, you just uh, are going to be making mistakes uh, and mechanically because you don't have enough skills, um, but you're, you're going to be really tough, and so you don't necessarily suffer badly from your mistakes. Um looked at uh, the different types of, of dragon, and I actually picked the Royal Frilled because they have uh, the most potential to gain um, magical power. And I thought, well, you know, this it might be interesting to play a dragon that really focuses on being a mage um, and not uh, necessarily the raw physical aspect. Gotcha. So one of the things, it's really entertaining in our game, like uh, your character Thomas has led to probably some of the best role-playing interactions that we've had. And a lot of times just it happens to be due to you rolling a critical failure on on some skill at, at, at times. What do you, what would you say your, your favorite interaction as Thomas has been, like from a, as a dragon has been so far? Ah, uh, there was the time that, um, a couple of the other characters had gotten back from Kingsdale and were talking to each other about a dragon juicer that they saw. And, uh, yeah, you had me roll for uh, whether I could understand what they were saying, and I critically failed um, double ones. And um, so it was interpreted that I thought they were looking to sell me out to uh, a dragon juicer. Um, now, in the lore, it wouldn't have mattered because uh, dragon hatchlings are not like their blood doesn't work for a dragon juicer; it has to be an adult. Um, but uh, uh, you know, Thomas doesn't necessarily know that, and so the whole the rest of that session, he was um, uh, always looking out for whether his group was about to like uh, ambush him or something like that, and uh, was uh, very reticent to try to do anything. Uh, but they said that ended up being a lot of fun. It kind of had a real um, Saturday morning cartoon vibe to it. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely fun because the rest of the group actually played into the gag for almost the entire uh, scenario. It was it was really funny because they they intentionally started wording things in a way that could be sounded slightly ominous. So. Yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. Um, I'll admit, my, probably one of my favorite interactions is when I uh, uh, had Thomas kind of. 
negotiating with a the uh, Splugorth High Lord. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to there. There's some second and third order effects of that that may pop up in the future that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, yeah. No, that was fun too because Thomas is very idealistic. Uh, he's named Thomas Paine, and he has the ideals of the, you know, the 18th century uh, patriot and writer. And um, yeah, so he uh, uh, is totally opposed to slavery and and uh, you know suppression of rights and things like that. And so when he's talking to uh, uh, this creature of uh, they're basically, you know, interdimensional fascists from Atlantis. He is, uh, yeah, he, he's coming to a real conflict with his his ideology and uh, trying to help people who may not, maybe don't really even want to be helped because they're so, um, they are so, uh, they've been taught too much about uh, their, their uh, where they are in their society and stuff. It, it was interesting. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so I I look forward to how that plays out. Especially, hopefully, we can get all the way to the the end run of our campaign. So it may it may be more may not be too relevant in the near future, but in the distant future, it could be much more relevant than you think. Yeah, and distant sounds good. I love playing Thomas. Yeah. So um so one of the things in making a dragon hatchling, so people probably have some assumptions about like how what a dragon hatchling would be be like. Now they're they are powerful out the gate, but they also have some vulnerabilities that some people don't think about. Um, did, has any of those vulnerabilities kind of caught you off guard? I wouldn't say they caught me off guard because they're just, they're going to be, they're a known vulnerability. Whenever you make your character, you will be keenly aware of the main trouble, which is that you, um, uh, you have very few skill points. Um, so you're not good at anything. Uh, the, the only thing you're actually good at is a hit um outside of that you you can do a bunch of different things but you just can't do them well and you're um not gonna be very intelligent probably you you could be i guess um you're probably not gonna be very high in spirit um or agility so those will be low-ish and uh all your skills are gonna be d6s like if you really press it you can get a d8 and something but um it's that is a big uh a big disadvantage for dragon hatchlings yeah definitely and it's one of those things that they're they're a pretty they appear to be a pretty powerful combatant from the beginning now one of the vulnerabilities though is is a strength and a vulnerability is is your ability to metamorphosis because at least in savage rifts when you actually change into a humanoid you lose your actual MDC status, so like your you still have your toughness die, but your actual toughness uh, with your armor and stuff is significantly lower. Oh yeah, it drops, and you you don't get your size bonus to your um, uh, armor either, so to your toughness either. So yeah, you are um, maybe not as squishy as most normal humans, but you're pretty close. Yeah, and so it's really kind of funny too, like talking about that being that. Uh, combatant powerhouse i mean yeah like as you'll see the dragons themselves have very significant mdc armor they've got mdc claws they've got breath weapons but are they really a good frontline fighter in the beginning no (laughs) um you're um i mean you can deal with small targets kind of okay depending on how uh how much you uh follow the rules with uh penalties to hit size um you, you 
for most dragons, they'll have a cone attack or something like that, which is helpful. Uh, my character does not, because Royal Steel Dragons instead have a uh, toxic breath weapon, which is okay, but um, whenever most enemy infantry types of combatants are armored with uh, full environmental armor, it's not going to help. Um, yeah, and so, and then when you do hit, um, I mean, you can do some damage with your claws and stuff, but if you're going to try to go up against a robot or a heavy uh, power armor or another large beastie of some sort, it's really tough for a, a dragon hatchling to punch through that stuff. Yeah, and it's funny because for the dragon hatchling, I mean, it's size 6 to begin with, right? So that puts it on the size, like, it's actually bigger than a UAR-1 Enforcer robot, you know, if it's not shrinking its size. Yeah, I think it's a little smaller than a school bus. <laughs> yeah, so, but one of the other, you know, and we'll get into some GM considerations like setting up encounters and all that kind of stuff and dealing with dragons because because of their inherent toughness, kind of like the Glitter Boy, the dragons can, like, if you make something focused to take out the dragon, it could be squishy, it could crush everybody else in the party if you've got a lot of more squishy people. Yep, that is absolutely true. Now, one of the other interesting things that you, you already kind of brought up about with Thomas about dragons is they're also one of the um, frameworks that not only it's inherently magical and it can take psionics. So you can, uh, kind of like the mystic, you could make a character that's both psionic and magic at the same time. Yeah, and I did that <laughs> for Thomas. He's got magic and he's got, uh, you know, the, they come with psionics, um, but he also has some magic. Yeah, and so each one of the dragon hatchling types have kind of a, a different level, and like the royal frilled is one of those that is like wow because they actually get to choose, um, they actually get to choose powers off the mind melter list, like one power. Oh, one... I just realized looking at this again, I did get I couldn't remember if I bought it or not, but yeah, you, you do start with uh, arcane background magic with uh, royal frilled just out the gate. Yeah, so the Royal Frilled actually starts with both already. A lot of the others start with various levels of uh, of psionics to go start with. Yes. Now, the thing is, with all this options, though, it kind of makes it hard for you to actually... I mean, it could make it difficult to choose and plan out the progression of this character as, it, as you go. It is. It absolutely is. And, in fact, um kind of ran into some trouble because uh, uh, early on, uh, Thomas... <laughs> made a mistake when casting a spell and killed a friendly he definitely not have killed um totally by accident and uh was admonished by an npc now a pc um for being so reckless and uh inept and so he has uh focused more on improving his skills with advance than he has on magic which was not the plan but <laughs> there you go. It is. It's always fun when role-playing events actually like uh, inform. You know, they it informs where you're going, but of course it can't. Like you said, it can disrupt the plan that you had in the very beginning. Yeah, for sure. But that and that was. I mean, again, that was another really great uh, interaction for Thomas's character because, like, as the dragon hatchling, like you don't choose your hindrances in the beginning like other characters. They they kind of are set up to come later in the game. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's actually a huge. Uh, that's a huge part of playing one. Like, if you're going to start at novice one, that is actually very interesting um, because. Uh, 
you are starting as tabula rasa. I mean, you you are influenced by the world around you, and that mechanically comes up as the hindrances. And so that was really interesting for me in in how we played out that because that actually led to your first uh, hindrance, didn't? Which one? Which one did you end up choosing there? Oh, for the, uh, well, that was actually a later one, I think. Um, oh, okay. Okay, yeah, because it swapped out. Uh, swapped out the, the one where he was like uh, always wanted to help a pretty face to um, uh, gave him uh, I'm forgetting off the top of my head uh, uh, he's now determined to help out a particular race of uh, of DBs that's basically what it is ah yeah okay I remember that now awesome cool yeah <laughs> well so is there any before we continue is there anything you want to talk about in developing thomas your your kind of thoughts as a playing a, a dragon hatchling regularly um yeah so uh one of the fun things about playing a dragon hatchling is that you are just so hard to kill um and so you you just I, it's a lot of fun to just kind of lean into your mistakes um let them happen and don't fight it too much um, because, uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're tanky. It's fine. You'll probably be okay. Now we talked uh, about, uh, before we continue though, we talked about, um, like, so it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. You're running a game for your younger daughter in Savage Rose. Is that correct? Uh, well, my older daughter and she's 13, but oh. I had run a game in the, uh, a couple games in the past that were kind of brief. And in both of those cases, when she was, I don't know, eight or so she played uh dragon hatchlings um yeah i think the inherent like you're pretty tough was very um made that really appealing to her that's cool and doesn't that also kind of especially for a younger player that may not you know they're like you're an older person playing somebody who's naive and all that kind of stuff but actually having somebody who's not as worldwise actually playing a character that's not as worldwise that that seems to lean into some pretty good role playing as well oh sure yeah no uh kid's gonna be better at playing that than i am i think yeah um uh, yeah because for them it's like oh i kind of get to play me except i'm incredibly powerful yeah that's cool well i appreciate you sharing that so and, and I will say, yeah, that, that toughness thing is really important for a lot of kids because kids have a little bit uh, of a rougher time whenever their character is getting beat up or something like that. Um, if they go down or, or whatever in a game, they tend to take it more personally than a grown-up will. Right, because they're, they're, they're a lot more connected to it. And I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're all connected to our characters, but we also have been doing this for a while and we understand that's part of the game. Yeah, and and we also will we relish the opportunity to have a good death scene or something like that too. Yeah, and actually, again, it's one of those things with Savage Rifts. The the addition of the uh, um, oh, damn it, the death and defeat table. Yeah, the death and defeat table. <laughs> those... and even though I am clearly the toughest one in the party, I'm the only one who had to run uh, had to roll on that thing. But I rolled a nat twenty, so my character. Uh, survived just fine yeah actually and it's well and we'll get into that but that was one of those instances where i inherently actually built a threat to challenge thomas directly <laughs> he dominated thomas is what happened <laughs> yeah so um so talking about building things though like we talked about we're actually going to do a build off and kind of the way we kind of do this is so uh john and i both brought a uh 
basically a character that's a dragon hatchling uh, to discuss. And we went ahead and advanced them through season uh, number two uh, advanced, just to show a diff couple different ways you could build out a dragon hatchling. Now with this, for some of the builds, uh, for some of the rules options like Hero's Journeys, uh, generally we just choose them so we can kind of keep it going. Um, and then, of course, after the episode, I'm going to post something up on Facebook so you can choose on which one uh, character you like. And then uh, we will also provide the character sheets for you to download as well. So, John, you want to start and uh, introduce us to your character? Sure. Uh, her name is Oratha, and uh, she is um, yeah, it's a, a great horn. That's right. Great horn dragon hatchling. I wrote a tiny story for her if you want me to read it. Sure. All right. Yeah, so she was born in a techno wizard's workshop in a village outside of Tolkien proper, where she became a sort of local protector and beloved young subject of her kingdom. Uh, her techno wizard mentor, Carl Woods, taught her to be honorable and loyal as he felt society needed everyone to follow the rules for everything to work. The civic mindset became important for Aratha, and she put it to use when the coalition attacked her village. Unfortunately, her strength combined with the local militia was nowhere near sufficient to defend her village, and when it was uh, not but rubble, she did her best to get the children out of harm's way. They made their way to the Colorado barony of uh, Wilmington, but they found little solace there. Fortunately, a squad of coalition deserters fed up with the killing had found a new organization to join uh, for protection, and they invited the young dragon hatchling, having seen her heroism in protecting the orphans of Tolkien. Together, they enlisted in the Tomorrow Legion, where they hoped to do some good. So, a little bit of backstory. This, since this one is uh, season one, um, it made sense to have a little bit more stuff going on, but uh, no backstory needed for most dragon hatchlings. Yeah, okay, cool. So, how did you build out this character? Okay, so, all right, I went with Great Horn Dragon, uh, actually, and they are relatively good with uh, hitting things to start with. Um, since their claws and uh, bite gets an AP equal to the dragon size, which is six, um, mm -hmm. so that lets you have a better shot of taking out something. And... Um, Let's see, I went ahead and added, uh, I, I picked the education table and just picked uh, the adding more smart skills because, like I said, one of their big difference, uh, deficits is just lacking skill points. Um, and then for uh, edges, uh, I made sure, click the wrong thing. And then for edges, I picked uh, Brute, Brawler, Martial Artist, Dragon, uh, Sharp Horns, which uh, the last one is a... Uh, is a thing specific to uh, the Great Horn Dragon, and that gave her another plus four AP, so she gets like AP 10 overall, I think, on her claws, horns, and tail lash. Um, and then the martial arts um, allows her to uh, have a uh, higher defense um, when unarmed, which, okay. Um, and uh, they, uh, they get to uh, add another die of damage and then the brawler increases toughness a little bit which every little bit counts and they get to upgrade they get to step up their damage from their uh, natural weapons as well so um that largely counteracts um some of their uh, abilities to actually hurt large things like you'd think a dragon hatchling would maybe be able to do um and since she was uh, already upgraded a little bit i or, or had had some life um 
I, I gave her a couple of weapons um, and some armor uh, that she can use when in human form because you will spend a fair amount of time in human form usually whenever you play. Um, so I gave her a Techno Wizard Lightning Axe, which is it's got some uh, abilities that make it nice for attacking robots and stuff, and then a, a TX50 Railgun. So you know she can carry heavy stuff because she's got a D12 plus four strength starting out. So. That lets you carry a lot of gear, and it lets you uh, use gear that has a high uh, minimum strength. And then I gave her armor. Um, in human form, you're going to want body armor. So if you're playing a dragon hatchling, um, one of the things you want to do is pick up uh, weapons and armor. And they don't even have to be very good to start with, but they will help quite a bit whenever you're in um, probably human form. I guess you'd be in some other shape. But... Um, yeah, so she's got uh, Crusader heavy combat armor because uh, that is also a relatively heavy armor that doesn't matter because you're uh, even in human form you're very strong. Yeah, and that's uh, definitely one of the interesting things. Like, is toting around some of the more heavy weapons because um, you keep all your physical uh, traits. It's just the actual armor application to your toughness is one of the things that goes away uh, when you are in humanoid form. Yeah. And then for powers, I gave her Havoc, Speak Language. Oh, no, that starts. they start with Speak Language. Uh, telekinesis. So, because, uh, yeah, you don't necessarily need super combat-y uh, psionic powers. Um, you can definitely think about more utility there because you want to be useful in other, other ways besides just fighting. Gotcha. So it looks like uh, for this character, you pretty much focused on kind of creating a brawler dragon, if you will. Yeah, yeah, and I think, yeah, they, they have weaker flame breath than the flame wind dragon, which makes sense, um, and it, I think it's only lim it's limited to a cone as well, um, so that makes them, um, yeah, they're, you're going to be using your flame breath very little, probably. Gotcha. So how much, uh, so in with all the final gonculations, what what is the damage dice for your actual claw attacks for this? this oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we got strength, which by the way is D12 plus four plus three D8. Uh, it's putting an AP of six on here. I think it should be a ten. Um, but uh, yeah, so they they can do um, uh, wow. quite, that's quite a bit of damage. Yeah, that's that's pretty massive. <laughs> calculate an average on that, but yeah. Wow, that's actually pretty massive. Actually, one of the yeah one of the other funny things, and actually we we haven't got into it too much, but like dragons automatically cause fear as well when they're in their natural form so that's one of those things that you know to consider as well as when you actually get into a combat especially with like you know mooks like you know uh, cs grunts or whatever it's like they have to roll fear yeah. to see if they run away yeah how often do you do that um i think for uh, <laughs> yeah for us i i probably forget that one quite a bit so you know i think that's fine because it, it, it would be goofy if you did it every time to be honest um i i think it makes it's more interesting whenever it acts as a disadvantage in a social situation than when it uh messes up uh, the enemies in a fight I'll be honest, and we can talk about some house rules here, too. So, like, one of the things when we were going through the playtest I actually recommended was getting rid of the fear and basically giving a bonus to a, a, a bonus to either um, charm or intimidation. That was kind of my recommendation. And then... Allow, that sounds easier. <laughs> yeah, and then allowing the fear to be purchased later as, like, an upgraded talent. 
yeah, it, it may be something more fundamentally psychic about being around a dragon, yeah. Right, because, you know, it's one of those things like you read, like, in Dragonlance and all the novels and stuff is dragons are, you know... Co- you know, cosmic powerful beings, but they, you know, so like they can use that for fear, but they can also use it for awe as well. Right. So. Right. But yeah, and so, you know, a lot of times, like if you're in humanoid form and you then transform into a dragon, a lot of times I'll, you know, that'll, that'll kind of happen in the background and be like, oh, time to run away. But Yeah. Yeah. And that's good fun. Although sometimes you turn into dragon form, you just want to give a bunch of kids a ride. Yeah. Yeah. True. That's, that's been, that's been quite entertaining as well. Uh, I think you've, you've played into some of the uh, Pete's dragon aspect of, of Thomas a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think going out into lots of different traditions is good. I like the Pete's dragon idea that, um, Oh, I should mention, uh, the, the toughness that I ended up at because I did take some of those, uh, some of the things, uh, it's at, uh, 41 with 22 of that being armor yeah uh, and then uh if he's in human or she's in human form it's 18 with eight of it being armor and uh, not mega damage so yeah <laughs> yeah now another house rule i may consider making like you in like and this we haven't talked about this but you know for people thinking you could consider um in a humanoid form of giving dragons the same ability like the cyber knight and just make them immune to gritty damage um just to you know because mm-hmm. they're they're still dragons but i think that wouldn't break anything and it'd be fine yeah yeah and surprisingly like for a lot of times you know you guys have not get, gotten hit significant enough to actually have to worry about gritty damage in many of our in our games so true true well, I will say in my last game when I was running it for uh, my daughter and a couple of other uh, kids was uh, <laughs> um, I rolled really well uh, for one coalition soldier hitting the dragon with a heavy pulse uh, and managed to do uh, uh, like two wounds. Wow. <laughs> Just a laser rifle with a heavy pulse. I kept hitting those sixes over and over. Um, so dumb luck can cause that yeah that's pretty awesome um and yeah we'll get into some some ideas for gms to kind of quote unquote take out the dragons but uh of course the question is do you really want to now, <laughs> now on the flip side uh actually it's funny because initially uh i actually also built a uh a great horn brawler but i'll i'll include that later but uh after we discussed it i'm like oh well, i'll go the other way and so i've created aurora now i'm actually playing through um the uh 40k rogue trader uh computer role-playing game um beta that's out right now and mm-hmm. so for whatever reason if you're familiar with 40k there's the changer of ways demons from zinch um, for some reason, I kind of got in, like, after we talked about it, I kind of got that in my mind. So my dragon uh, character that I brought is Aurora, a seasoned female uh, dragon hatchling forest runner. Um, and so forest runners are some of the smaller dragons, but they still are dragons. So, um, so with the skills on her, I basically... Um, Initially bought her agil or her spirit and smarts at d8s. Uh, her strength uh, is a d12 plus three. Her vigor is a six, and then later one of the upgrades I bought her agility up to a d6. 
um, for her skills. Uh, athletics is a six because that affects breath weapon. Fighting is a six. Um, notice occult are all d6s. She's got psionics at a d10 and spellcasting at a d8. Yeah, all right. And so basically, I'm leaning Caster. in. Yeah, so I'm leaning into Aurora as the focus caster. Now it's interesting because the uh, f- the forest runners are only size four dragons, so they're only slightly larger than a glitter boy. Yeah, and you're so, only the size of a Cadillac Escalade. Right, exactly. So, and the other fun thing is, is with uh, with one of the the uh, abilities I took, she's got pace of twelve plus nimble. And, hey. and with her uh, dragon scales being smaller, she's got a, she's only got, as a smaller dragon, got only got a toughness of a 33 with 18 MDC. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at that point, you might as well play like, a, you know, a, a, a power armor ace or something, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so basically, as you can see, I'm actually leaning, leaning into the more uh, magic-wielding, like, spell-powers-based uh, dragon as opposed to the brawler dragon. So, now, mind you, she still has the uh, dragon's claws that do uh, D12 plus 3 plus 3D4 AP4. So, I mean, she can still cut through most of your normal... Um, uh, threats just with her weapons. She's got poison breath, just like, unfortunately, it's probably not going to be all that effective with all the environmental body armor. Yeah. And so ultimately... Although I feel like with that, I haven't, I just haven't had much opportunity to, but I feel like with that, it might be really great whenever you're in a situation where you really don't want to kill anybody um, and you just want to knock them out. Yeah. Uh, that would probably be helpful. Well, that's true. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. So, uh, so what I ended up doing initially with her edges is I bought her up to Master Psionic uh, in the uh, very beginning. Uh, I also bought Dragon Celerity, which gave her the pace of 12 plus a d12 running die and nimble. So nimble kind of is gives a, a negative to hit, um, just like deflection. Hmm. And then, uh, like I said, then also added in, she's got uh, arcane background magic in addition to psionics. Yeah, although she's going to have to wait till veteran to get uh, Master of Magic. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. So that's kind of why I pushed to get Master Psionic early, um, as a uh, in going from there. So makes that, sense. Yep, and then and of course that's why when you look at it, the very leaning heavy into both uh, the D eight of um, the D eight smarts and the D eight. Uh, spirit at beginning so that's why i kept the d4 until until the next uh till season so yes um so with that let's see uh so her powers list is really the big thing yeah uh, it's big yeah so she's got boost trait uh, which is self that's going to be psionics or uh, psionics based. She's got confusion, she, uh, detect arcana, which is innate to dragons. She's got divination. I figured, you know, having her being a diviner might be kind of fun to deal with. Um, yes. She's got fear, which, uh, you know, basically enhancing her draconic fear. And I also went with stun as kind of a, an attack spell. Or yeah, I think that, that's cool because then you, you know you can stun them and then you or your teammates can go 
beat up the <laughs> stun yeah. target. Yeah, and then, exactly. And then for her uh, arcane magic abilities, I went ahead and got Bolt, uh, Deflection, and Invisibility. So a little bit of offense, a little bit of defense, and a little bit of utility. Yeah. And, you know, so I didn't, I didn't choose any equipment, and I'll be honest, I did not actually dive into a storyline. Um, but Aurora could easily have been a dragon hatchling that may have been found by, like, a gray seer or basically a divination-based, you know, a mind melter. Um, for her uh, hindrances, though, and that's one of the things, like, leaning into a character to make them, you know, kind of give them some flavor, she is driven, a minor driven, but she wants to become the greatest draconic sorcerer ever. Or sorcerer. Yeah. Um, she is greedy, so she 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 definitely is wanting the items, but she just doesn't have any yet. Um, but to make, but of course, uh, for me, you know, playing good characters or do does have to be some sort of goodness in them. So she is, even though she's driven to be the best and she is greedy, she is a heroic character. So she will go out of her way to save those in need and stuff like that. Yeah, and you know, the greedy thing is fun with dragons too, because. Uh, you could play into that, especially if the driven to become the best uh, draconic sorcerer ever. Is you could uh, that could be a greed, not necessarily for wealth on its own, but for uh, magical possessions, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, for example, how have I been tempting Thomas with his quote-unquote hoard? <laughs> <laughs> I may have something that uh, could destroy the world on my possession that I should probably give to somebody responsibly uh, or somebody responsible who would properly dispose of it but no that, that this is the start of my hoard um, and uh, uh, so I'm just looking for a way to, to hide it away somewhere and then add other things like I wanted to add an evil rune weapon to it but it disappeared <laughs> or something <laughs> well you know yeah, our, our cyber knight who is one of your mentors may or may not be bringing in some previous campaign knowledge but you know hey it's been fun <laughs> yeah yeah no cool. I, i'm waiting for that one to blow up in thomas's face in a big way oh yeah yes thomas like i said thomas is giving me a lot of fun options for our future campaigns so yeah. Okay, but we're not tough. So we just presented uh, our two dragon hatchlings to you. We'll throw them up there on the boards, and so you guys can download them to, for use in your own games. And uh, of course, if you want to uh, vote for uh, which one you think uh, you prefer after our little discussion here. Yeah. Oh, I should before you go. Uh, you mentioned your hindrances, and I only hinted at them in her backstory. But uh, she is cautious. Um, she has a code of honor, um, so uh, acts like a, well, it says, gentlemen, I don't know if describing Aratha as a lady is okay. Um, and then uh, loyal, like one of her big things really is just being loyal to the, the people she's around. Nice. Yeah, that, and that's really kind of interesting, playing into a cautious dragon. That, that, that's got to be interesting. I think that she may have had a different hindrance before uh, she encountered uh, coalition soldiers, and now you know, like losing a battle. Um, and now, uh, she wants security. <laughs> I bet. Well, and so that kind of does lead us into kind of our GM discussion with dragon hatchlings, right? Because like, you know, kind of like you hear, uh, me and John talking, Thomas is, is really providing us with a lot of really entertaining 
um, role-playing and experiences and stuff, but as his game master, I do have some chores in in trying to balance uh, the encounters in a way that are either challenging to Thomas or just uh, accepting that Thomas may actually brute force his way through some things. And uh, you probably experienced some of that as well with, like, your daughter's game. Yeah, um, if if I want to take out the... uh... Uh, if, if if I want to be able to threaten the dragon, I don't want to be able to completely disintegrate the techno wizard. Right, and that's so that's definitely like so that is like it's kind of like planning for a glitter boy, right? Like that's really one of the most difficult things in actually planning encounters for dragons, whether in in dragon form. Like you said, the the ability to shrug off a lot of damage is a benefit for uh, for some players, but it also can be a challenge. Um, and according to the book, like most of the normal dragon hatchlings, uh, have generally like an 18 armor and six toughness when they're in dragon. Oh, no, no, it's, it's higher than that. Oh, is Uh, it? Yeah, no, I think uh, you might've gone over and looked at my sheet in, uh, uh, in roll 20. I have to keep switching back and forth between forms. And so that's what he's got whenever he's, uh, wearing his armor, Ah. um, in human form, but whenever he's dragon form, it's 37 with 18, uh, of that being armor. Yeah, so that's when you take in his toughness and all that kind of in, into account, right? Yeah, it's size of six and uh, uh, the natural draconic armor. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah. No, I was looking at the uh, the dragon hatchling listed in uh, the iconic framework for the flame wind. It says just the armored hide is eighteen and six. But oh, that, yeah. And that yeah. doesn't include the size bonus and all that kind of uh, plus uh, to include yeah. the size bonus. Yeah. Yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna be looking at between like 35 and 40 typically yeah yeah which is crazy powerful now so like a lot of people like one of the uh the first encounter i put you guys into was i use um uh uh, like a convert as the uh encounter out of the savage foes of north america and in there they actually have a uar1 enforcer which seems like a pretty natural starting um thing to threaten a dragon wouldn't you agree yeah, and I threatened a dragon with one pretty badly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so that's the funny thing. Like, the UAR-1 is actually a pretty powerful combat robot, and so some of the weapons it's kind of slinging, you know, they're all vehicle scale, right? So it's one of those that employing these against the dragon could may or may not be effective, but then when you turn them on to other player characters could basically turn them into a grease spot. Yeah. Yeah, although you know, it depends on how much you use the uh, the rules about uh, size difference and penalty to hit or bonus to hit. Yeah, well, and of course, then you've got targeting systems that balance out a lot of those things. That's so, true. <laughs> you know, but like so, the UAR one, you've got the main gun, which is a medium rail gun, which gives you an armor piercing of eighteen. So that takes out probably two. Th- so just looking at that armor of eighteen, that takes about out about two thirds of that. Now you still have toughness and and the size increase and all that kind of stuff, but still that that can reduce it pretty quickly. Then you throw in a high rate of fire with that, that many die roll, like four dice rolls. It's a pretty good chance you're going to land a, a couple hits that are going to hurt the dragon with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, the UAR-1, it's kind of described as sort of the thing they're phasing out. It's like, oh, this is like you're running into a T-72 tank, you know, or whatever. It, it, not a, not like a modern main battle tank, but um, it's still a giant threat. 
Yeah, exactly. Now, it's funny, so, like, in our encounter, right, like, one of the big things, like, if I'm somebody piloting this thing, the biggest weapon I've got against something like a dragon is the medium missile launcher. However, the problem is, it's tempting to use that against the dragon, but most likely you are going to kill your dragon player if you use that. Yes. <laughs> because, like, the high-explosive warhead itself does 8d6 AP24, so literally you're going to negate all of their armor. Yeah. And quite likely roll high enough that it, they're going to have a hard time uh, re reducing that those wounds with, uh, uh, with a, a die roll. Yeah, yeah. So thankfully you allowed us to ambush that thing. Yes, uh, and that's one of the things, like, when you're doing, when you're planning that kind of, it's like, okay, if I'm throwing that in there... I probably want to give my players a chance on how to set up, you know, give, you know, give some role playing. Like a lot of times with that encounter, people will set up an ambush. They'll drag, you know, the various forces into the ambush, so they actually control the battlefield as opposed to the other way around. And that does bring up another utility of a dragon, which was that we use Thomas as the uh, as the bulldozer and uh, uh, excavator for the ambush. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got a lot of strength and all that stuff, so you actually was able to do some digging and stuff. Yeah. Now, like, so when we did that, I primarily, like, I used the railgun on you a couple times, and I think that's where I might have got some wounds on you, but primarily I was targeting you with the mini-missiles and light missiles. Um, however, and, and it's, I mean, again... And I grappled. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and then you grappled the the, the, the UAR-1. Now the funny the first thing, time I made him look up the grapple rules. Yeah, yeah which you do quite often now. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I can't hit it. I can't do damage for anything. <laughs> well, and so that's the point, right? The other, the other point of like that dragon being a, a, a powerhouse. Like uh, the dragon's going to end up kind of being the tanky one of the tanks of your party, not necessarily the the the, the big the big hitter. Yeah, and when you're fighting against coalition, you're automatically drawing aggro because coalition uh, prioritizes you as a target right exactly so pe a lot of people are going to be shooting at you and so it's one of those in that situation like like uh, yeah i'm targeting you with the uar1 but you're not actually uh, thomas at the time really wasn't in a position to really do a lot of damage in return yeah i tried it nothing doing uar ones are tougher than dragons yeah exactly they're into like the 40 like the 40s for their actual toughness and stuff yes Okay. Now, so, oh, again, so like I said, quite often it's like, hey, you know, if you're fielding a robot, if you're putting actual, like, powered armor vehicles, like, like if you've got coalition on the, on the field, most likely it's going to be those vehicles, those uh, Samus pilots that are going to go after the dragon, because the, the dead boys, while, you know, the lucky hit with the heavy pulse, most likely don't actually have any enough firepower to actually penetrate a dragon's armor. Right, and so they should be prioritizing your Leyline Walker or your, uh, in our case, our Mind Melter, who is terrifyingly effective. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately he phases, and so no, like, yeah, I, again, he's one uh, interesting one that I had. Like, they're they're targeting like the Cyber Knight, who they're not going to hit anyway. But you know, it's like, uh, but balancing it out in that way of having some other threats that are going to focus on the lesser powerful units in in your party. Yeah. Now it's funny because I have this little. I haven't really pulled this designed unit out yet. But like I said, sometimes you actually do want to create threats to focus. Because I mean, sometimes you do have to put a little fear into the dragon, um, you know, or the the 
power armor pilot, and so like even just a CS mini missile team toting a CR-1 mini-missile launcher and then giving them the take-em-down edge. Generally, if you're using, like, armor-piercing mini-missiles, are going to are going to do some, some damage to those high actual toughness characters. Yeah, especially if they're firing from cover or something like that. Yeah. Now, the situation, like, for our event, um, where, where I surprisingly took Thomas down, um, I did kind of create a special character to to focus on him and it was we were it was a a scenario focused on dealing with the splugorth and so i actually created a bioborg that focused that had extremely high strength and was focused on grappling and so literally the bioborg its entire purpose was to grapple the dragon and keep the dragon busy and it just so happened that once you get into the grappling rules and you start actually applying crushing and stuff like that that it uh surprisingly when it comes to big strengths went out in that yeah well in that the the bioborg was stronger than thomas was <laughs> that made a huge difference yeah and again my goal wasn't to actually kill him but it was really more to just like create a threat also that was a little bit different right because like you know, having a grappler that's up in your face all the time and keeping you completely focused where you can't, like, disengage and go engage with something else was kind of the point of that encounter. He was effective at that. <laughs> now, on the flip side, too, like with dragons, is, the and much like you t uh, could potentially talk about um, dealing with, like, other high... Uh, defense characters like the glitter boy for example uh there's a couple other potential uh threats that you could put out there like a cyber knight a cyber knight is actually a pretty effective dragon hunter out there whether it's a, a do-gooder cyber knight that hates dragons or a fallen cyber knight that size sword with the right upgrades and and like combined with a boost trait power is pretty pretty effective at cutting through anybody's armor yes no the, the size sword is one of the the most powerful weapons in the game <laughs> yeah and it's <laughs> to be honest and it's funny actually it's like when you look back at the palladium books the you know the cyber knight wasn't a cyber knight's blade was not any more powerful than a mind melter so i do i do like that they yeah. made that change i think that was a very good step because i do remember that seeing like oh the cyber knight gets this great thing but you're never going to use it because there's always going to be a better laser gun or whatever yeah exactly so one of the other uh really potentially nasty anti-dragon combatants you can put out there is a mystic knight knight of the white rose um they are they also get magic and psionics but they also get access to the uh soul blast power from mm -hmm. the mystic which basically allows them to ignore a significant amount of physical armor yep that will work as will anybody who uses any sort of mind control power or something to try to somehow cloud the uh, dragon's mind those sorts of attacks are going to be pretty effective against most dragon hatchlings oh yeah like like stun and sleep and um puppet like you puppet the dragon and suddenly everybody's like oh no yeah yeah i mean thomas only has a d6 in spirit i don't well, think i will improve that anytime soon well like so, for vulnerability for sure yeah and like for example one of our uh we ran through um uh, when we went through the initial portion of the um, Game Master uh, adventure, um, <laughs> I made a tweak to the robot pilot in that and actually made him a vampire. And so 
I think I might have got Thomas at least once with his sleep power. Uh, like, yes, of, you did. Of course, yeah. you fall. Also, he ran. He ran away terrified from several things. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. You even felt your fear check. Yeah. Yeah, no. Dragons are totally susceptible. Dragon actually, and it makes sense. They're a little kid. They don't quite understand yet, so they are easily frightened. Yeah, and so and so those kind of things can, and so for when those happened too, he was in his uh, humanoid form as opposed to in his dragon form. So, um, right, so, but I don't think it would matter. <laughs> right, no, that doesn't matter, you know. But the other flip side of that is, in humanoid form, you are generally more suspect susceptible to damage because you don't have that massive uh, the massive armor from your dragon form. Right. Right. Yeah. No, you're you're much more squishy then. But yeah, the first time when uh, Thomas tried to lay down and go to sleep, it was, everybody's like, "Oh, this is bad." <laughs> yeah. Yeah that that was uh, that was pretty bad. We managed to get out of it though. Well, help was sent our way too. So. Yeah. And so that that's you know of course it's always good to have you know have outs for people in those situations. Um, in your own game, like running for the Dragon Hatchling, what were some of the considerations you were making as a game master? Well, uh, I was considering that, well, like we said before, the whole thing of you got to have something with the right amount of oomph, um, uh, that will be a threat. Um, you don't expect a coalition grunt to be a threat, but there I was. Um, other things, uh... Most dragons fly, and uh, that has an interesting effect um, because it makes travel easier at the gate. Um, and so, uh, you know, one character can simply ride on the back of the dragon if the dragon hatchling is willing to allow that to happen. So they get to act as a vehicle. Um, so I thought, well, all right, I'll just go ahead and give them a, a kind of a little hovercraft thing to start with. Um, yeah, just so. Uh, you know, they're going to be flying anyway. <laughs> Might as well give them a little bit more flexibility, not just leave it up to the dragon, because, yeah, the dragon actually is very easy to spotlight. Um, I, uh, uh, what else did I see in the past? Um, yeah, when Ellie was littler, um, it, it was always interesting to figure out how to integrate her into uh, role-playing uh, scenes. Uh, with the dragon hatchling because uh, she's just going to want to uh, interact with the world in a very physical way so she's a weird robot she just bites it um, so <laughs> those are opportunities but they're uh, th they can also make things weird <laughs> yeah I guess so I guess <laughs> Thomas hasn't gone out of his way to try and eat random people so that's that's been a positive <laughs> Yeah, well, I think he asked. Didn't he ask the Cybernet if that was okay? And Cybernet said no. <laughs> uh, yes, I believe that very early they may have laid that out of don't eat people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and dragon hatchlings don't need to eat or drink in Rift's Earth because there's so much magic it just feeds them. Yeah, and that's really kind of a, an interesting thing. They can eat eat or drink as they wish. So that's uh, another fun uh, thing that they don't have to worry about starvation or any of that stuff. Right cool well so is there anything else you want to throw out concerning uh dragon hatchlings for the, our listeners i think we've covered all but i'd be curious to see if anybody had any questions 
Yeah, yeah, definitely is. So if you have any questions, go ahead and throw them down there. Or if uh, any oversights, we may have been incorrect on a couple things because uh, there's, there's a lot of information out there concerning dragon hatchlings. And, uh, man, they've got a lot of special abilities. They do. So, all right. So uh, along with that, um, uh, John, if you want to hang out, um, I am going to transition a little bit. Um, so on Spotify with one of the last episodes, another listener named John actually asked a question about how to use the number lines that I actually put into the beginning of the show. So. Yeah, I'll stick around for this. Okay, cool. So, uh, so when the voice when I was coming up with the voice of hope, um, somebody I was talking to, you know, suggested. Um, basically, I was kind of trying to model it after broadcasts like Voice of America and, and you know, like Tokyo Sally and that kind of stuff. Um, and somebody I was talking to actually mentioned the mentioned the idea of number stations. So, uh, John, do you know what a number station is? Yeah, it was a Cold War method of sending uh, messages among spies. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because they actually still exist today. It's basically just a string of letters and numbers that correspond to some sort of cryptological device on the receiver's end to decode the message. Yeah, I think usually they're like a one-time pad too, so they're virtually impenetrable for... uh encryption yeah it's 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 so it's it's really interesting that just that because it's you're just passing it over open airways yeah and so for the voice of hope that's so with the number lines in the world i'm kind of simulating beacon passing coded messages to tomorrow legion teams in the field over open frequencies yes and so um but the way I designed it is, well, at least when uh, Savage Rifts first came out, uh, using the, uh, from the Game Master's Guide, basically using the encounter creation tables within the Game Master's Guide to create that number line. So up through about episode 24 or so, it's pretty much just straight out of the original uh, Savage Rifts Game Master's Guide. That I, And I include all the stuff in the show notes where you could go through and, and kind of... Co- uh, line them up to what those tables are yeah now with the addition of american armageddon and now with uh south like atlantis and south america but with specifically with american armageddon they actually added additional encounter tables and mission tables into all those books and so it actually became a lot more complicated on how to create this process and so i actually went through and i created my own uh derived encounter creation process and I generally regularly include the link in the show notes and I'll include it today as well Um, but that it kind of changes the encounter process in a couple ways and I'll just kind of go over this week's number line with you um, so you can kind of understand the process that I use Great. I will be following along in the PDFs. All right. So the first number uh, in the number line basically gives the GM a distance and general location of the adventure. Um, so one of the things I actually use Google Earth a whole lot, and I actually drew out kind of some rings in because uh, in the Rifts North America, and based off uh, some of my experience, uh, like flight planning and stuff, basically. Uh, what it came out to uh, one of the complications you run into is like in the way they had it uh, st- originally start is you would roll a d8 which would align to a distance band and then you would roll some dice or in the regular game would uh, roll some dice that would give you how far it is like 2d6 times 20 miles 
And then you would take that mileage and divide it by basically how far your party travels per day. And then every three days for that, you would draw an encounter card. And if it comes up with a face card, then that would then lead you to troubles and encounters and stuff like that. Yes. So, so that was the original way. So what I did is I basically created these rings and I've created basically travel distances, basically distance one, two, three, four, five, I believe right now. And with that, that kind of aligns with certain areas, you know, so like this week, um, when I rolled it, I basically it's a D8 with eight being an interdimensional one. So it's like, hey, just create an adventure. Don't worry about this. Um, but for this week, I rolled a three. And so with this, uh, uh, well, the way this goes, it aligns with the distance band three. And so some potential adventure areas that are in that ring are like the Kingdom of Dunskin, CS Chitown, CS Lone Star, the Golden Age Weapon smiths or the dark woods of uh, northern alabama or the texas freelands all kind of associate with these potential areas that makes sense and so yeah the center is castle refuge i presume yeah yeah the, right now this is based off ca uh, castle refuge i'm i'm having to go through some uh, some different considerations for like uh adding in atlantis and stuff like that so i'm still kind of working through nugging through those um, yeah well i mean it's uh for beacon i mean he's based out of uh castle refuge so yeah. right now it makes most sense for that yeah exactly well and so along with that um so again for some variability i actually added in uh land uh, water and air travel because one of the things i identify is the different ways of traveling have different kind of requirements for cards and then so to kind of streamline it a little bit i actually did some ma basic math and calculated out kind of an average and so i just kind of with each distance band um just say hey for this travel you draw this many travel cards for uh, determining your encounters okay and so basically, so for this week, since it's distance band three, according to my chart, basically there's four travel cards that you would choose for this uh, adventure that we're building. Okay. And so for this week, when I drew uh, two came up face cards, one came up the Ace of Clubs, and the other came up the Jack of Diamonds, um, we'll just keep that off, uh, hold on to that uh, for a little bit later in the process, though. But So those were the, uh, the possible trouble that was determined for the travel. Okay. So next on the Voice of Hope Cypher, though, uh, uh, you go, there's actually uh, different distance band tables now. And so with this one, the distance band three table, it identifies some of the specific locations within that area, kind of like we talked about, uh, and the mission profiles and encounter tables that go along with this. Um, so okay. like the distance table three has, like I said, the Dunskin and Darkwoods, which uses mission profile tables from the Arcana and Mysticism book. And where, okay. whereas like Chi Town, Lone Star, and Golden Age Armaments all would use mission profile tables from Empires of Humanity. That makes sense. Yep. And so, and then I added in the first Apocalyptic Cavalry into this, and then just like an other location, um, and just tied those to the GM's handbook when I created this. Makes sense. Sure. Okay. And of course, uh, going along with that, you have the mission charts, but then you also have the encounter tables in those areas. Because, like, like for example, in Empires of Humanity, for the Golden Age uh, uh, weaponsmiths, you would use the Domains of Man, whereas, like, Chi Town, you would use the Coalition table for encounters. That also makes sense. Gotcha. So for this week on the number line, I actually rolled a 10, which we line up to other locations, which would use a GM's handbook for both missions and encounters. 
Okay, that makes it easier. One book. Yeah, exactly. So go going back to the base book. So for the mission profiles, when I rolled, I you know, and eh, maybe I might have used some creative creative rolling. Uh, we ended up coming up. With, I ended up coming up with a twenty um, on the chart uh, on the chart, which for mission says it's a monster hunting. So some of the yeah. other. Yeah, there you go. And so it kind of yeah, works out because it aligns with what we're doing for this uh, this episode. Um, some other mission profiles generally have a number of days required for the missions that actually go along with the card mechanic. So you could roll like you know a two d six days to do a certain mission, and then you would have to draw another encounter card every three days. Um, Makes sense. Okay. Yeah, however, monster hunting is interesting because it just says choose an appropriate monster from the Savage Foes of North America, or you can roll on the encounter table and just ignore anything that's not monster or supernatural. Right, yeah, there's no sense in making too many tables to go through. And, right. Uh, GM discretion is advised. Yeah, and so for this episode, I actually went ahead and said, hey, we're dealing with dragons this episode, so I decided to choose dragons for the monster hunt monster that the uh, Tomorrow Legion is hunting this time. All right. And that's yeah, still... they make good villains too. Yeah, yeah, they can. And so, um, but you all, I also st still have the two travel cards. So, um, so after you do all that, basically we just revert back to how you do um, encounter building from the game master's handbook. So basically, the trouble table on page seventy-one is where all the rest of these roles come from. Uh, well, the the trouble table and the encounter table. So. Um, but if you were using something like Empires of Humanity, you would roll on the trouble table, and then you, if you got an encounter, then you would actually go to the encounter, like the Domain of Man encounter table for those rolls. Yes. Okay, so for my rolls, uh, so with the Ace of Clubs, I went ahead and rolled a, rolled a die, and I got a, a number four on the counter, uh, the table, which is a storm. Um, then with the storm, it says to roll a d6, which I did, which I got a six, which then says that the storm can last up to 1d4 days. So I rolled a d4, and I got a four. So during whatever adventure this is going to be, there's going to be a storm that affects visibility and skills and everything for up to four days. <laughs> okay, so that's going to be a, a major part of this uh, particular adventure. Yeah, exactly, or it should be. Um, so Jack of Diamonds, I went ahead and uh, rolled that, and so uh, you know, I rolled a 20, which is lots of trouble, which means I rolled twice on the trouble table and then combined the results. Uh, the first re-roll was a 2, so I got Refugees. That drives, it says roll 3d10, which I rolled a 20 on that, which means that there's going to be 20 Refugees that's going to be part of this encounter somehow. <laughs> and then, All right. And then the 20 second... 20 Refugees trapped in a storm. <laughs> quite, yeah, quite possibly. And then, so the, uh, the next roll was a 12, which means an encounter. Um, it does say to draw a card, and if a, trubs, a, a club's encountered, that, that basically the players are caught off guard. I, I'll admit, I normally skip this draw, um, just because it creates a little bit more extraneous things. It could cause some confusion in the number line. Um, yes. And generally, uh, leave that up to the GM on how he, wants to, he or she wants to actually include that into the game. Yes. Um, so... And now I go ahead and reference the encounter tables that are on page 72 through 75 in the GM's guide. Mm -hmm. So for the first roll on the encounter table, lo and behold, I roll a one, which says that if things weren't bad enough, 
this adventure is really sucking right now. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's it's, get, it's getting more it's getting more more fun. So, so I go to the table and I roll a d8. Uh, the the separate this is not if things were bad enough uh, table. And it says yet another group uh, a group or threat shows up and gets involved. It says to roll another again on the encounter table. So, yes, things are getting worse, much like John just said. So the second encounter roll here, I rolled a 16, which drives to the Demon X. Uh, <laughs> so with yeah, the... these things are pretty tough. Yeah, Although exactly. Dragon Hatchling should be able to deal with them reasonably well. Oh, yeah, exactly. So uh, it then dro- drives a D4 for uh, the uh, Feculent dr- Demon Xs, which are kind of a uh, like a foot soldier type. I, I rolled three for that. And then it said roll another D4 for a type of Demon X called the Hangdog, which is kind of like a ma- kind of a mount. And I ended up having four Hangdogs. So, <laughs> okay, they're pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for this encounter, there's going to be a group of ten Demon Xs that the party have to deal with. Now, it does say to roll on the opposing leader table. Um, so uh, the leader of the Demon X are normally called Basil Demon Xs. And I rolled a four, which says that basically the Demon X in charge of the group is wary. He's expecting trouble. He's He's ready to attack, he's uncooperative, but he's not openly hostile. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I might even skip that roll just because the Demon X are just going to come out swinging, I would think. Well, and so this will this will be interesting because it'll play in later to when we actually build sure. the narrative for this game. Mm-hmm. Um, so the third roll on the encounter table, now that we go back, I rolled a 14, which is broad kill. You know, everybody loves okay. everybody loves the Broadkill. They're probably the favorite bad one of the favorite bad guys of Rifts. Um, yeah, they're kind of like the orcs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you roll a d10. Uh, so you get a d10 normal Broadkill and a d6 cybernetically enhanced Broadkill. And you also have to roll on the opposing leader leader, leader table again, but you get a plus two. So for <laughs> so for normal broad kill I rolled nine for cybernetic broad kill I rolled five and then the leader I rolled a six so he's an aggressive leader that's openly hostile and ready to fight so basically you're looking at like fifteen broad kill as well that you may have to face Th- down these with. are very typical roles for you as a game master ah uh, you know hey <laughs> I, I like a lot I like a lot of depth in my game. <laughs> <laughs> got depth of the lines of enemies yeah. <laughs> you know so so ultimately all of those lead into what the actual number line so when I read those number lines so all those numbers generally associate with these kind of roles however they're just numbers right they they lean into some encounters but it doesn't actually build a, a adventure it doesn't build a narrative for you it just is get the basic data for you to start your adventure yeah, it's a box of Legos with a, a half missing uh, instruction booklet. Right, and so let's you know, so let's look at this uh, this episode of the Tomorrow Legion. Right, basically, this is the Tomorrow. You know, this episode it's a has a thing about a sanctioned Tomorrow Legion dragon hunt, uh, and well, hey, let's figure out the story for that. Um, if again, Riffs has got uh, tons of books, but if you look in Riffs Aftermath, there's like a one-line reference in the section of talking about Wis- in Lower Wisconsin called the Kingdom of Shadow, that's ruled by a dragon named Keith, somewhere near Marsfield Stevens Point in Wisconsin. Okay. Uh, there's nothing more than that. It doesn't talk about the type of dragon, the age of dragon, what his kingdom is. Like, it's literally one-line adventure right there. But All right. Hey, 
But let's build that out. So, for this episode, the Tomorrow Legion is asking the Legionnaires to kill the Dragon Keith. All right. Dragon so, Keith is up to no good. Yeah, so in so Keith's kingdom, and one of the things that uh, with the Tomorrow Legion, right, is rescuing refugees, right? Well, Keith's kingdom has been capturing and killing refugee groups that have been moving through this area of Wisconsin, and it's time to put an end to it. So the Tomorrow yes. Legion is sanctioning the team to kill this dragon. Okay. Well, to make things interesting, instead of counting those two face cards as travel cards, I'm just going to combine them, the encounter cards, into this overall scenario. So when the players get to the kingdom area, there's actually a major storm that's going to going on lasting for days. It's probably a blizzard. So with that, we could probably assume that Keith might actually be an adult snow lizard dragon. There we go. And so, you know, so when they move into this area, they probably stumble upon some patrols of Broadkill and Demon Xs in small groups, but separately a couple at a time. So this makes, and these two groups probably make a part of Keith's warband. <laughs> yeah. And so the group, you know, so your players, as they're gathering intelligence and everything, they find out that the, 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 um, Keith's warband still has a group currently has a group of 20 refugees captive that they intend to feed to their dragon and then maybe eat a few of them themselves like one does yeah well yeah exactly you know demons monsters um well they do probably with uh, some intelligence gathering they find out that Keith is an adult snow dragon that actually regularly summons these storms that allows him to openly roam around his kingdom because well he can turn into a cloud of snow if you will plus it also forces um any refugees in the area to actually probably go to ground right and so one thing along with that is, well, this dragon probably has something like elemental manipulation as a master, like a master level, uh, like a mega powers level spell. Sure, yeah, I'm assuming this is an adult. Right, yeah. exactly. And so with their intel, they could find out that the broad kill leader, so actually, like, as an NPC, this is one of the things I like to do, uh, Their broad, the broad kill leader is probably a crazy uh, modified uh Broadkill and then um, the Demon X basically are both uh, deeply suspicious of each other and they're using their respective followers to try and get into the dragon's good graces. All right, so since we have two large groups of pretty nasty villains, it might make it a, a more feasible scenario for a group of heroes to, uh, to, to deal with them as being rather divided. Right, exactly, and that, and you know, and that falls into a lot. Like, if you look at like even the Crystal Shard, right, like the 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 iconic uh, Dritz Duundren book, right. You've got uh, the per the the young mage holding the Crystal Shard. He's got a dragon that's kind of following him. He's got he's got a bunch of followers that aren't all necessarily like a hundred percent on board with with him with him and or their place in the pecking order. Right. I think there was a demon who really wanted that shard. It's been a while since I've read that, though. <laughs> right, exactly. And so now, so just laying this out, taking the number line, applying maybe a little bit of understanding of Palladium Books lore, now we've actually got a pretty good old-fashioned rescue the captains, slay, or, re, bleh, rescue the captives, slay some demons, and kill a dragon, but in savage Yes. Ways. Yeah, or at least set the demons against each other. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure you could probably uh, put in some some regular actual people that li- that maybe like cowed and and living in fear within this kingdom. So. Sure. Yeah, they could have some allies that they they get. Right. Exactly. So. But and so that's generally so t- just taking the number line and cr- using it to in turn create an actual adventure out of it. Absolutely. So, well, and so you know anybody who wants to you know take this, please take this idea and, and run it. But if you do, hey, at least send us a, a mission report so we can talk about it. So like Beacon can actually put out some information about whether your Legion team was successful in taking out the Dragon Keith. Um, so we can share it with the rest of the Tomorrow Legion. Sounds like a solid adventure anyway. Cool. Well, yeah. and with that, John, I think it's uh, getting on to uh, later in the evening. Uh, so would you like the last word? Anything you want to add? I did want to briefly bring up, uh, so in the uh, this week's uh, tale for Palatin, uh, 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 he, uh, he uses uh, tarot cards to, uh, to to try to guide his way. Um, and I wanted to mention that tarot cards can be great fun to use for role-playing games, for uh, uh, setting up adventures. Um, like, if you don't know where you want to go, um, I've done this, and it was really fun. Um, you can do a tarot card reading in front of the players, like they go meet a fortune teller or something, and um, you use those tarot cards and the meanings that they give uh, to create an adventure for them. Um, that's cool. So they might, yeah, it's fun. Um, yeah. So tarot cards themselves are, they're just like, uh, I think they're like 18th to, uh, present century, uh, 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 playing cards used mostly in Southern Europe, but, uh, uh, more Western Europeans got a hold of them and decided that, uh, they could be used for uh, divination and such, uh, and like the early 20th century. And so, uh, there are a lot of, uh, it's a lot of fun nonsense to play with them, and uh, you can find a lot of decks that are that have really cool art. So anyway, I just wanted to bring those up because I thought they were they're kind of related to the uh, to the number reading because uh, that also includes some cards and things. You can use that to uh, uh, create an adventure and even put them out in front of the players, and they may have their own interpretations. You may have your own interpretation and see how that plays out. That's pretty cool. Actually, and I think there might actually be a... I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I think there might actually be an older Savage uh, edition of Savage Worlds, a setting that does use tarot cards for oh, a adventure generator. That might be fun to get a hold of. Yeah, I have yeah. to look. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. Actually, in there... Um, so, like, there's the three dragon ante in D&D, like, back in third edition, they actually had using that as, like, a tarot card reading as well. So that, that kind of stuff is running yeah, around or, everywhere. Or, yeah, I think in D&D it goes all the way back to, um, oh, what was the original thing with, oh, the Castle Ravenloft adventure, uh, where you encounter, they have, a like, a, a Roma-like uh, culture there, and you can encounter a, a fortune teller who will... Uh, who will draw cards and it actually affects what happens in the game. Well, that's cool. Nice. <laughs> so all the way back to like the, was it late 70s, early 80s, something like that. Sweet. That's cool. And if I end up finding out which world that is, I will post it in the show notes as well. Sounds good. Cool. 
Well, John, I appreciate you taking your time to come on and talk about dragon. You know, talk about uh, here, here there be dragons. So for the Tomorrow Legion. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. I'd love to come back. Sure thing, brother. And uh, well, I will see you next week for our weekly game. Sounds great. All right. Have a good one. And uh, you too. all you rifters, enjoy your dragons. Good night.